You're listening to a sermon from Midtown Presbyterian Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about Midtown and its ministry, please visit us at midtownpres.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. Guys, you can do the mobile pantry and then go to work afterward. You could make it happen. We can do it together. I'll be there. You can do it with me. We want to love our neighbors well. That's an important thing. Yeah, good morning, guys. Glad you're here. Our friends, we are busy people in a busy world. And if you want to see that fact clearly, all you've got to do is start asking people one question. How are you? Really? Have you noticed this? How are you? I'm good. I'm busy. Hey, how are things going? They're good. They're busy. It's involuntary. It's how we respond to that question oftentimes. According to a recent study cited in the Harvard Business Review, when asked the question, how are you, 80% of participant responses included the word busy. Eight out of 10. There's another Gallup poll that was done in 2018 that again revealed 80% of Americans reported that they, quote, never have enough time. Social scientists have started to call this phenomenon time poverty. Most of us live in our world, and it feels like we're the cat in front of the keyboard gif. You know this gif that has made the rounds? This is how most of us feel in most of our lives. Rushed, hurried, busy. We've come the, become the lived embodiment of this cat. But what's maybe most fascinating about this trend of busyness is that many of us in America celebrate it. We often equate busyness with goodness and health. We've managed to turn busyness into a virtue. Research out of Columbia University shows that we tend to assume people who are more busy are therefore more important and impressive. And there's another study done by the American Psychological Association that found that people who reported being busy were seen as morally admirable. It's a moral trait. Busy people are better people in our culture. And so it's not just that we have full schedules. Feeling and acting busy has become a point of pride for most of us. There's a phrase that's been making the rounds in our culture that I think expresses this. Many of you have heard of it. Rise and grind. You guys know rise and grind? There's a New York Times bestseller entitled Rise and Grind. You can go to YouTube and search and dozens of videos show up with millions of views all entitled Rise and Grind. And if you're not familiar with the phrase, that's okay. It basically encompasses the notion that we need to become people who are busy from the moment we wake up to the moment we go to bed. Or else we're not maximizing our lives. We need to become people who maximize every little ounce, who squeeze out of life every little ounce. And in order to do that, we've just got to constantly be busy. Rise and grind. We wear it like a badge of honor. And most of us are so conditioned by this that we're terrified of not being busy. Have you caught yourself feeling that way? You grab your phone as soon as things get a little bit still, a little bit empty, a little bit quiet. Our smartphone usage shows that we're terrified of stillness. Here's a trivia question for you guys. I actually want to hear your answers. How many times per day do you think the average iPhone user touches their phone? Shout out some numbers. 80, 400. Lauren's much less confident. 400. 2,600 times we touch our phone per day. We can't handle not being busy. We constantly look for something to keep us occupied. Our minds and our hearts shudder at stillness. There's a philosopher named Baruch Spinoza who called this the horror vacui, that is the fear of vacancy. And when we live long enough in that kind of culture, when we get shaped by that sort of busyness for long enough, it starts to take a devastating toll on our health. 
there was actually a cardiologist back in the 50s who saw this trend coming. His name was Meyer Friedman. He was one of the first doctors to equate high stress levels with heart disease. And he used a term to describe America. He said that America has hurry sickness and that it's wreaking havoc on our physical and emotional health. And he defined hurry sickness this way. He said, hurry sickness is a continuous struggle and unremitting attempt to accomplish or achieve more and more things or participate in more and more events in less and less time. And does that not sound like how we fill our lives? More and more stuff in less and less time. Contemporary doctors have started to adopt Friedman's language. Hurry sickness is something that psychiatrists will use to describe their patients. Two psychiatrists, Rosemary Sword and Philip Zimbardo, actually wrote an article called Hurry Sickness. The subtitle was, Is the Quest to Do All and Be All Consuming Us? And in the article, they use three questions to help us identify whether we have hurry sickness or not. So I'm going to pose these three questions. We can do some self-diagnosing in the room. When you're checking out at the grocery store, do you tend to look for the shortest line to go into? Most of us don't want to admit it, but yeah. When you're pulling up to a red light, do you tend to count the cars in front of you and get into the shortest line? All the time, right? Do you often multitask to the point where you forget one of the tasks you're working on? Are you one of those people that has 8,000 tabs open in your browser? (coughs) Based on those criteria, I'd say the vast majority of us, myself included, suffer from hurry sickness. And it's not just affecting our bodies. In our minds, it's affecting our souls. Because when we live like this, without margin, constant noise and activity and doing, we lose the capacity to become present in our lives. We lose the capacity to become present to the moment. Whatever situation or experience is in front of us, whether it's good, bad, or ugly, busyness robs us of the ability to enter into it well. Because we're distracted, or we're numb, or we're looking for better or more. A theologian, Douglas Steer, termed this interior immigration. That is, we're here, we're present in our bodies, but our minds, our souls, our hearts are a thousand miles away. And we lose the capacity to become present to other people. This is huge in our culture. We breeze by one another without really noticing each other very much. We overlook our barista or our coworker or a neighbor who shows a particular face or a fellow student who's always quiet in the classroom or a person in need. We drive right by them all because we're consumed with our own need to get our own stuff to be efficient, to maximize, to rise and grind. We also lose the capacity to become present to our own souls when we're busy. That's actually oftentimes how we use busyness. We use it to repress our fear or our anxiety. Busyness is about becoming outward sort of people, obsessed with how we appear or what we get done or our accomplishments or the level of pleasure we can experience. And when we become outward people, we often fail to become good inward people fail to deeply and genuinely reflect on the meaning of our lives. Why we're doing what we're doing? Why am I so busy? What's the point of all of this? There's a great theologian named James Houston who wrote about this in his book on prayer. He said, busyness seems to be a determination not to miss out on life. Behind much of the rat race of modern life is the unexamined assumption that what I do determines who I am. What I do determines who I am. That's how most of us live. In this way, we define ourselves by what I do rather than any quality of what we are on the inside. It's typical at a party for one stranger to approach another with a question, what do you do? But perhaps perhaps we wouldn't have a clue how to respond to the deeper question, who are you? Who are you? And then finally, friends, busyness robs us of the capacity to be present to God. Our lives are just too full to allow for any meaningful engagement with God. I have conversations with people all the time. I ask, hey, how's your spiritual life going? It's like, well, it's 
okay, but I just don't really have time to pray or read the Bible or dig into this book or practice loving my neighbor. My life is too full. I'm too busy. Our hands are like this, and we're unable to open-handedly receive the love and the grace and the peace of God. The things that God wants to give us, we feel like we don't have time for. Another theologian named Thomas Kelly put it this way. He said, strained by the very mad pace of our daily outer burdens, we are the further strained by an inward uneasiness. Because we have hints that there is a way of life vastly richer and deeper than all this hurried existence, a life of unhurried serenity and peace and power. If only we could slip into that center. If only we could find the silence which is the source of sound. That is, if only we could deeply and fully and richly engage the life-giving presence of God. Guys, our culture of busyness, it's rapidly decaying our physical and emotional and spiritual health. This is why thousands of years ago, the great desert fathers and mothers, this monastic community that moved away from the busyness of their culture, they called busyness moral and spiritual laziness. Because it's really just about ignoring or burying or pushing things away. We need a cure for this disease. We need a cure for busyness. And so that's why we've called this series The Cure for Busyness. Here at Midtown, over the next three weeks, we're going to explore the ways in which Jesus and the scriptures both give voice to our human propensity for busyness, but then also prescribe practices for us that can lead us to the cure. And today, we're going to focus on one particular habit that Jesus not only taught us to practice, but also practiced in his own life, one that he embraced, and that served as a cure for busyness for him, and has served as a cure for busyness for thousands of years for followers of Jesus. It's the practice of silence and solitude. So friends, if you have a Bible, open it with me to the Gospel of Luke. Luke is the third book in your New Testament, if you're flipping there. We're going to be in Luke chapter 5 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, by the way, that's okay. The word's going to be behind me on the screen, so you can follow along there. Luke chapter 5, starting in verse 12. That's where we're going to be. Once, when Jesus was in one of the cities, there was a man covered with leprosy. When he saw Jesus, he bowed with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you choose, you can make me clean. And then Jesus stretched out his hand, touched him, and said, I do choose. Be made clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Jesus ordered him to tell no one. Go, he said, and show yourself to the priest, as Moses commanded. Make an offering for your cleansing for a testimony to them. But now, more than ever, the word about Jesus spread abroad. Many crowds would gather to hear him and to be cured of their diseases. But Jesus would withdraw often to deserted places and pray. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We arrive to this passage here in the Gospel of Luke right at the beginning of Jesus' teaching and healing ministry. Things are going great so far. He's been proclaiming the good news that redemption and restoration have arrived and that they're coming from God through him. And his healing and his teaching are all about this redemption and restoration. He's been driving demons out of people. People who had demons for years, who people, other people believed were beyond healing. He's bringing down dangerously high fevers. He's curing illnesses. Just before this passage, he actually performed a workplace miracle for three fishermen, Peter, James, and John. They were struggling to catch fish for hours. And Jesus says, well, why don't you try the net on the other side of the boat? 
And they're like, I mean, yeah, man, we've tried that. Like, we've been out here all day. He's like, well, try it again. And immediately, after a day of catching nothing, they pull in loads and loads of fish, and they get to see who Jesus really is, this miraculous force in their lives. And Jesus says, well, come and follow me. And so they drop their nets, and they go and follow him. Miracle after miracle after miracle. The word about Jesus is spreading naturally. And so this man with leprosy has heard about Jesus, and he sees him coming through his city. And he says, wherever Jesus is headed, whatever he's doing, I need him. I'm getting in his way. I'm going to interrupt his journey. And remember, Jesus has places to go and people to see. He's got, you know, saving the world on his agenda. He's got a lot of busyness he can focus on. And yet he remains remarkably interruptible. That's one of the things you'll notice about Jesus throughout the Gospels. He's always focused on a mission, very focused on his goal in life, always knows his calling, but he's also always attuned to the little things around him. He's always interruptible, especially when that interruption means loving his neighbor well. You guys, we can often tell the sorts of people we're becoming based upon how interruptible we are. How interruptible are we? We can tell if we're giving in to the oppression of busyness based on our interruptibility. And keep in mind who the man was that was interrupting him. This is a leper. Lepers in that day had to quarantine from everybody else because their illness made them a contagious threat to the cleanliness of the community. They were overlooked and isolated and often shamed by their culture. They had to quarantine. And yet Jesus has time for that man. So not only is he interruptible, he's also willing to be interrupted by the very folks that his culture says aren't significant or are outsiders or are others. Jesus always has time, even for the most broken of us. And in this interruption, Jesus radically dignifies this man. Not only does he see him, but he speaks with him. He looks him in the eyes. He touches him, and he heals him. And then he tells the man, now, don't go back and start proclaiming this to everyone. Just go back, and we'll check in with the priest. That's how the system worked at that time. You check in with the priest, and they'd give you the A-OK to re-enter communal life. And he says, re-enter communal life. Love God and love your neighbor. After you've been healed, get back into the world. That's what Jesus is saying here. But naturally, when people see this man who had leprosy miraculously cured, and he tells them, well, yeah, I met this guy named Jesus, and habit, word starts spreading rapidly, as much as a disease might spread in the ancient world. It doesn't stay under wraps. And Luke says that now more than ever, the word about Jesus spread abroad. Many crowds would gather to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And so people from all over the ancient world, they've heard about Jesus, what Jesus can do, and now they're pressing in on him to do more. But notice how Jesus responds. Verse 15, what does Jesus do when the crowds press in on him? He leaves. Luke says that he often withdrew to deserted places to pray. In other words, as soon as Jesus' work is getting really successful, as soon as business is booming, as soon as his ministry is expanding, he pieces out. And that's exactly the opposite of how our busyness culture has trained us to respond to crowds and busyness. See, most of us actually assume that crowds are the goal, that busyness is the whole goal. We assume that noise, constant activity, that that actually is a validation of our work. Busyness and hurry, we think, are success. And so when the crowds press in on us, when all the activity presses in on us, we do the opposite. We work harder. We expand our hours. Imagine if most of us were there in Jesus' ministry. All these crowds are pressing in. What would we do? We'd say, Jesus, you're doing a great job. Love what you're doing here. So let's actually just build a giant multi-million dollar building so we can really churn out these healings. And let's get a drive-through healing line because we know that more crowds are going to come. We've got to make this efficient. And then let's set up a merch table over there. 
with shirts and hats and mugs so that everyone can hear about this healing work. And we're going to expand our hours. We're going to work harder for the kingdom, right? That's what we do when things get busy. That's what we'd want Jesus to do. And when I say we, I mean me oftentimes. I can hear my own doing-obsessed voice calling out to Jesus, saying, what the heck, man? Look at all these people you can help. Look at all that you can do. Why aren't you doing more? And Jesus has none of that. There's no Messiah mugs for sale. Jesus refuses to be consumed by the busyness of doing that so many of us are consumed by because Jesus knows something that we so often forget. That we can only be people who unify others to the love and grace and peace of God if we ourselves are unified to the love and grace and peace of God. Jesus knows that true and deep human life and work is always prompted by connectedness to God, not by the urgency of the crowds. You guys, in a world constantly pressing in on us with incessant busyness, Jesus reminds us that the most radical thing we can do sometimes is stop doing. The most radical thing we can do is actually become people who are reoriented towards God. And that flies in the face of rise and grind. Flies in the face of our culture. For most of us, we think the pathway to a successful and fulfilled life is more. More hours, more sports leagues for the kids, more weekend activities, more hobbies, more whatever. And sure, this notion of walking away and experiencing some spiritual peace, that sounds nice to us when it can really fit into my other busy schedule. But we also think that, well, if you really want to be successful, you've got to be busy. If you really want to be uh, successful in life, you've got to have efficiency. Successful people don't turn down crowds like this. But if that's you, if that's creeping up in your mind when this idea of stepping away is presented before you, remember who we're reading about here. Jesus is the single most influential person that has ever lived. He was remarkably successful in his calling. He knew exactly what he came to do, and he went and did it. And yet, he was never hurried. He was never busy. Apparently, to be successful, you don't need to be hurried. You don't need to be busy. There must be a way that those two things can go together. Jesus is actually showing us that a successful and healthy life of doing is always born out of healthy being with God. Doing never comes before being. Being comes first. I like how the theologian Martin Luther put it. He said, I am so busy now that if I did not spend three hours each day in prayer, I could not get through the day. Isn't that great? You guys, what the world most needs is not more 50-hour work week people or more anxiously driven people or more constantly productive people. What it needs is more deep people, more loving people, more gracious people. And we can only become those sorts of people in our lives if we get connected to the source of those things. If we cease our work to remember the orientation of our souls needs to be towards God and allowing him to shape us as we go into our doing. And that's why Jesus and his followers for millennia have emphasized the practice of silence and solitude. Silence and solitude is the deliberate act of stopping. Stop doing and create space to be known by God to listen to God and be formed by God in your life. Silence and solitude is an essential medication in the cure for busyness. And so with the rest of our time this morning, I want to explore three things that we learn about silence and solitude together and how we can build it into our lives. Three things. First, in this passage, we learn what they are and what they aren't. We also learn what they do, and we also learn how we practice them. What they are and aren't, what they do, and how we practice them. With me? All right. What 
silence and solitude are and aren't. First, they are often, not occasional. Notice, the text makes sure to emphasize that Jesus did this often. He withdrew often. This wasn't a one-time retreat every couple years for a few days. It was a consistent habit in his regular rhythm. In Luke's gospel alone, we read about Jesus emphasizing this practice at least nine times. And you see him doing it more and more, the more high-profile and in-demand he becomes. So the busier he is, the more he realizes that he needs to retreat into silence and solitude. He needs to get away from the crowds. And most of us, if we're being honest, go the opposite direction. The busier life gets, the more responsibilities we have, the less time we spend with God. The less time we seek silence and solitude. The greater demands of kids or school or family or work, the less we actually choose to set aside space with God. And then, when that happens, we wonder where God is. We're always like, well, I haven't experienced God in a while, right? I don't know where he's at. You guys, we lament the absence of God all the time in our lives. And that's a worthwhile question to ask. But I think we also need to be honest with ourselves. Have we been absent to God? Have we been so busy that we actually haven't created space to be with God, to experience him, to know him? Is it any wonder that in a life where we feel like we're too busy, we also feel like God is distant? It might be on us to change some of that in our lives. So solitude and silence, friends, it should happen often, not occasionally. It's not an occasional thing that, well, every once in a while you fit it into your schedule. You have to build it in. It has to be a regular thing. Solitude and silence will not creep its way into your already busy schedule. You have to build it in. The second thing we learn about silence and solitude here, it's withdrawal in prayer, not escapism. Notice that's how Luke describes this practice. He says, Jesus withdrew to pray. He's removing himself from the demands in prayer, which means this day wasn't just a day off, or this time wasn't just a day off for him. It wasn't a time for him to veg out and watch Friends for the 243rd time, or for him to spend hours binging video games. See, so often we assume that those sorts of things, vegging out, that that's the cure for our busyness. That's what we often do with our off time, right? We're just so worn down, we just need to stare at a screen and veg out, and we think that that will solve our busy inner and outer lives. But it never does. All that does is actually bury it because we haven't addressed it. We've just projected it onto a screen. And then we re-enter our lives and we haven't resolved any of the inner or outer chaos of our lives. And it just continues to be the cycle of busyness and vegging out and busyness and vegging out. It never resolves anything for us. And so what we need, friends, it's not escapism. What we need is withdrawal into prayer. And when I say prayer, I don't just mean a wish list of things that we throw up to God. It's important to ask God for things. That's an essential part of prayer. But another essential part of prayer, and often the starting point for prayer, is abiding with God. Being with God. Resting in God's presence and allowing him to wash over us. To transform us. There's a great theologian named Ronald Rawheiser who describes prayer as relaxing into God's goodness. That makes me want to pray way more. Relaxing into God's goodness. We need more space to do that. There's another theologian named Theophan the Recluse, which I was like, I can't not quote a guy named Theophan the Recluse. He put it this way. He said, to pray is to descend with the mind into the heart and there to stand before the face of the Lord, ever-present, all-seeing, within. We need to withdraw into prayer. We don't need to escape into vegging out. And finally, we learn that this practice of solitude and silence, it's deserted, not public. 
Notice that it actually specifies a location that Jesus goes. It says he goes to deserted places. And that word in Greek, it can be translated a few different ways in the New Testament. It can be translated wilderness or desert or quiet place. The point of the phrase is that it's a place free from the stimuli of the world, away from all of the hustle and bustle of the world around us. It's a place that can't be easily interrupted by distraction. And it's a place where we can find deep stillness. So it's important, friends, in solitude and silence to have a place. For me, this place, I have a few different ones in my life. Each morning, there's a place. It's my chair in the morning, you guys, in my study. Natural light pours in. My screens are far away from me. I spend time in silence and solitude every day there. And then every once in a while, I'll go to a prayer garden when it's not 148 degrees outside. There's a couple really amazing prayer gardens here in Phoenix. Canaan in the desert is one of them. Franciscan Renewal Center, some of you have been with us on solitude retreats to go there. Amazing, amazing spaces where all distractions can be removed. Sometimes when it's really nice out, I also like to drive a couple hours away. There's an amazing spot called the Muggy on Rim. We just went there last week for a solitude retreat. You lose cell signal up there. You literally can't be distracted by your screen and you spend time in silence and solitude with God. So find a place, a deserted place, a quiet place free from distractions. So the practice of solitude, it's often not occasional. It's withdrawal into prayer, not escapist. And it's deserted, not public. And when we start to embrace those parts of solitude, what we find is they transform us. They do things in us and through us in a few different ways. First thing silence and solitude does is it fights evil. And I know that language sounds intense, but it's true. See, most of us don't think of solitude that way. We think of solitude as a fun time in our favorite little coffee shop with an overpriced latte with some foam art on top and a Brene Brown book, maybe, some of you, I don't know. That's what we think solitude is, this really sweet, nice. Oftentimes, that's not what solitude is. In fact, throughout Christian history, the people who have practiced this most emphatically will tell you they are fighting down evil when they do. They go into the desert to fight the devil. That's what Jesus did. He didn't go to have a nice little latte. And here's why, you guys. The busyness of our lives, not practiced in silence and solitude, that busyness often makes us overlook or miss the brokenness and evil within us and around us. We need to remove ourselves from the hurry in order to see the ways that the devil, the enemy, busyness might be corrupting us, might be causing us to behave in ways that aren't the way of Jesus. Henry Nouwen put it brilliantly this way. He said, we think of solitude as a station where we can recharge our batteries or as a corner of the boxing ring where our wounds are healed, our muscles massaged, and our courage restored by fitting slogans. But that's not the solitude of John the Baptist, or of Anthony, or of Benedict. For them, solitude is not a private therapeutic practice. Rather, it is the place of conversion. The place where the old self dies, the self that's been corrupted by busyness dies, and the new self is born. The place where the emergence of the new man and the new woman occurs. Solitude is the furnace of transformation. Without solitude, we remain victims of our society and continue to be entangled in the illusion of the false self. Solitude is the place of the great struggle and the great encounter. The struggle against the compulsions of the false busy self and the encounter with a loving God who offers the substance of the true self. We fight evil in solitude. (laughs) Nowen is getting at the reality that intentionally removing ourselves from the world oftentimes exposes to us the chaos that's actually in us that we haven't noticed because of busyness. This happens to me all the time, guys. I enter into silence and solitude, and immediately my mind and heart are running. You guys experience that? You get there, and all of a sudden, chaos just unfolds in you in prayer. And that's actually quite the point. 
We enter into solitude and it exposes all of this busyness that we hadn't really addressed in our hearts and in our minds. It unearths that and then it allows us to bring it before God. And so the to-do list or the person that annoyed you yesterday or the excitement you have for football season or the movie you can't wait to see, all of those things can be brought before God and then once all of those things are brought before God, what you often realize is there's other stuff underneath those. So your jealousy or your fear or your worry or your anxiety or your pride, your anxious grabbing for control, your mixed motives, all of that gets unfolded here. And that chaos, when it's not brought to solitude, will leak out of us in some way. Our fear, our anxiety, all of our messiness will leak out of us if we don't address it. And if we don't do it in silence and solitude before God and in prayer, it's going to leak out in some really unhealthy ways. It's going to cause us to harm other people, to say the wrong things, to think the wrong things about other people. But when we bring it before God in prayer, it can be healed, it can be worked through by the Spirit of God. We can fight the evil, the chaos that's already in us. When we go to solitude, we are at war. War with distractions that prevent us from knowing who we really are. War with the unhealth that so easily flows out of our busy lives. War with the insecurity that we live out of when we forget God's love. And war with the hopelessness and cynicism of our world because we remember God's redemption and restoration. Solitude is a battlefield. You guys ready to fight now? Second thing we learn about what silence and solitude does in us. It provides space for us to receive God's love. When you're in silence and solitude long enough, you find that when you're alone, you're not really alone. When we empty all that mess and all that brokenness before God, we are met by the compassionate presence and gaze of our Father. He says to us, my beloved, I'm with you. I'm for you. I know you. I forgive you. Be with me. Rest into my presence. That's the voice of God that we've missed in all of our frantic busyness. That's the God that our souls desperately need to experience. One of the main reasons that we fail to experience God deeply in our lives is because we fail to build silence and solitude into it. We need to learn how to be with God in the silence because, as the great mystic John of the Cross put it, silence is God's first language. You can listen to a thousand sermons. You can read a thousand books about God's love, and those are great things. I'm a book lover. Read books. They're good. But the thing that your soul deeply needs that can satisfy the deepest thirst in your life is an experience of the love of God. Not just head knowledge, not just book knowledge, but an experience. And that love, by the way, it's never going to be coercive. It's never going to force itself upon you. It's always speaking to you, but you have to create space to hear it. So often our ears are too stuffed up with junk and noise to really hear the love of God. And solitude is the thing that clears out the ears of our soul. So solitude, it provides space for God's love. And then finally, third thing solitude does, it sends us back to the world with our calling. Silence and solitude isn't just about getting away from it all. It's not spiritual escapism where we detach ourselves from the busy world and never really re-enter it. The end game of solitude is actually bring us back. Solitude is a means to a different end, which is to make us people who love God and love others better. That's actually the whole point of the Christian story. The whole point of the Christian story is the redemption and restoration of the world. It's not the getting out of the world or overcoming the world. It's re-entering the world as transformed people who are vehicles of the kingdom of God that's coming to redeem and restore that world. And what happens when you enter science and solitude is that you start to recognize the ways that you can actually re-enter the world better. Because you brought all of your messiness before God, you can start to say, oh, 
man, I might need to change that habit. I might need to apologize to that person. I might need to bring about some sort of restoration in this relationship. Or, oh, man, I've been overlooking my neighbor who really needs help in this season. Maybe I could re-enter and help them. I really need to pray for this. I haven't really prayed for this person in a long time. I need to pray for them. Maybe I need to bring them a meal or something. Solitude and silence helps us re-enter the world because it reorients us towards God's kingdom, God's kingdom priorities, and then gets us back out there. And every time solitude is practiced in this amazing library of texts called the Bible, it pushes people back into the world. When Elijah came out of his desert solitude in 1 Kings, he came with real clarity about where he needed to go, the leaders he needed to anoint, who could actually embody God's heart to the world. He came out with real clarity on his calling, who he was. Paul came out of the desert solitude in Arabia with real clarity on what the gospel message is and how he can embody that gospel message to this new outside group called the Gentiles. Jesus himself came out of his solitude in the desert in Mark chapter 1, and he knew exactly the next steps on his journey, exactly the cities he needed to go to to proclaim the kingdom. Over and over again, solitude and silence is actually what gets us back into the world with real clarity and passion and hope. And so we will always emerge from those spaces. Maybe not always. Oftentimes emerge from those spaces as people who are reoriented towards our neighbors in love. That's the final thing we learn about what solitude does in us. And finally, friends, how do we do it? Because I know all of us are like, yeah, this sounds great, but my life, though, it's so packed with so much stuff. What do I do to build this in? So I've got a couple reminders for us as we try to build this in together as a community. First, start where you are, not where you think you should be. Start where you are. There's a part of me, because I'm a masochist and a weirdo, that wants to jump in and like spend two weeks fasting in the mountains without cell signal when I hear this, right? Get me there. Like, let's just do it. Most of us can't do that, right? We aren't monks and nuns. So we've got to find space for solitude where we are. So suggestions. Start by building 15 minutes in the morning. Every single one of you has 15 minutes you can put in the morning. A, a helpful start would be to remove your phone from your bedside. This is a crazy stat I heard. 95% of millennials and Gen Zers sleep with their phone by their bed. Removing your phone from being next to your bed is one of the most radical things you can do in our culture. Get an old-fashioned alarm clock. It's like 10 bucks. I'll buy one for you. Get an old-fashioned alarm clock. Set that sucker, and then when you wake up, do whatever you need to kind of get yourself awake. Get a glass of water, a cup of coffee, brush your teeth, whatever you do. And then go and set aside 15 minutes to be silent. There's a couple apps that we have suggestions for. We can send these apps your way. These apps help you build this space. Turn your phone on airplane mode. Turn the app on. It's a helpful tool. Take a few deep breaths. Pray a prayer of gratitude to God. Read a psalm. Contemplate the love of God for you. And what you'll find is that the more you do this, when you start with 15 minutes, you're going to want more and more of it. You're going to realize that your capacity expands to experience God in other new ways in your life. So that's the first thing. Start where you are, not where you think you should be. Second thing, remember your season of life. There are all sorts of different seasons of life in this room. If you have young kids, solitude is still possible. You just got to be creative. Sometimes nap time is your great solitude time, and that's okay. If you don't have young kids, if you're single, your schedule's going to be a little bit different. If you're somebody who has older kids or grown-up kids, your schedule's going to be different. If you're somebody who has grandkids, your schedule's going to be different. The point is to find it within your season of life. So remember your season of life. Third thing, be patient with yourself when you do this. Every single one of us, guaranteed, is going to enter solitude and all sorts of distractions are going to open up in us. It's just going to happen. And those distractions are actually opportunities. 
Don't shame yourself over those distractions. Everybody feels those. We're human. Instead, take those distractions and say, how do I reorient myself back to God in the midst of them? Or what might God be saying to me in my distraction? God, can you help me work through this distraction? Sometimes distractions are a gift because they teach us that God is at work in them. So be patient with yourself. Don't shame yourself over distraction. And then finally, friends, and maybe most importantly, remember you're not earning anything. Solitude and silence are not religious activity to earn favor before God. God has already named you as a beloved child. There's nothing you have to do to earn that love. There's nothing you can do to unearn that love. And so you never enter into solitude to earn God's love. You do it in response to the love of God that you know needs to transform you and transform the world around you. We have uh, some pamphlets. You may have seen them on the way in at the Connect table here. They're solitude guides. So if getting into solitude you think might be a challenge or you don't really know where to start, that guide is there for you. Grab one on your way out. And as you enter into solitude, use that. It gives you some helpful suggestions on how you can rightly enter into this sort of space, how you can build it into your life, regardless of the season you're in. All right, I want to close with a, a quote from John Climacus. He was a 7th century theologian. He said, The friend of silence draws near to God. Friend of silence draws near to God. Let's become friends of silence, you guys. Let's become people who withdraw often to deserted places and pray. Because it's there we fight down evil. It's there we'll find the love that we're looking for in God. It's there that we can be sent back into our doing as transformed sorts of people. It's there that we'll find the cure for our busyness. Let's pray. Mm-hmm.